Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. tonight verses 1 to 13 so if you guys will follow along as I read and it's a good night for the youth to be in here with us because we're going to deal with something that you don't have to deal with all that often but when you have to deal with it it's really good to know about and there are a few things in the scripture like that and tonight we're going to look at one of them so follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 12 verses 1 to 13. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, And all were made to drink of one spirit. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, I want to do what I've done every week so far, which is a review. Uh, Just so we can keep up with this. Uh, And if this continues on much longer, the whole service will be a review. Uh, But the first week we looked at the Holy Spirit as a person in the Godhead. And we said that the Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not the force. The Holy Spirit is a he, a person to whom we can relate, a person to whom we can pray because the Holy Spirit is part of the triune Godhead. The next week, we looked at uh, the Old Testament and the working of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, that it was occasional, temporary, and task-oriented, but that Moses and the prophets were looking forward to the day when the Holy Spirit would be a a reality in the lives of all of God's covenant people. The week after that, we looked at the Holy Spirit and Jesus, and that Jesus did his miracles and did his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was the Spirit-anointed Messiah. That's what Messiah means, Mashiach, anointed one. And so what he did, he did in the power of the Holy Spirit, And then we said, Jesus, having been crucified and now dead, buried, and raised again, Jesus is now the one who is bestowing the Spirit. He's pouring the Spirit, just like John the Baptist said, uh, I come baptizing you in water, but there comes one after me who's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus, and the Spirit of Jesus glorifies Jesus in the church. The week after that, we talked about how to engage in a theological debate. 
And the reason that we did that is because not many of us argue all that well, even though most of us assume we argue well. And so we talked about how we can argue together faithfully as Christians uh, because we were going to be delving into uh, controversial topics. Uh, the week after that, we looked at an introduction to the gifts of the Spirit, what they are, who has them, how they work, what their purpose is. Uh, the week after that, we looked at the gifts of the Spirit number two, uh, and we talked specifically uh, about um, just the, the particular workings of some gifts. Uh, we focused specifically on the gift of tongues, of prophecy, and of miracles, and we asked the question, are those things still in operation today, or are those things ceased with the early church? We looked at several arguments that people make to say they ended with the early church and with the age of the apostles, and we argued, uh, I argued, you may not have argued, but I argued that these arguments don't hold water, and that it seems to me, like 1 Corinthians 13 says, that tongues and prophecy and miracles are going to be gifts in operation in the church until Jesus comes again. And so there is, in our day, still a place for prophecy and for tongues and for miracles. And so tonight, I want to speak on the baptism of the Spirit. And the reason that I want to do that is because of what I argued last week. I said that I'm a continuationist. That is, I believe that all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are continuing I'm not a cessationist, that is, I, I don't believe that they've stopped. Now, what I want to do this week is show you that just because I'm a continuationist uh, doesn't mean uh, that I'm hoping we'll become a Pentecostal church. Because even though I think that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still in operation, I also think that they're mostly conceived of in the wrong way and probably not practiced in the right spirit. Uh, and so, and particularly in our day, a teaching that is afoot is that if you're going to think of yourself as kind of a higher level spirit baptized Christian, then you will have to have given evidence of that of speaking in tongues. In our area, uh, there's a lot of people, a lot of wonderful godly people who believe that either A, they're kind of a second tier higher Christian empowered for ministry, because they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, because they've spoken in tongues, and then in those same churches are a bunch of people who are frustrated and downcast because they haven't yet done it. And then there's us who wonder what in the world is going on. And so what I want to do tonight is talk about the baptism of the Spirit, uh, just to see what it is biblically, to go through those uh, passages and acts where people spoke in tongues, and to talk about what's going on there, and to, to come to some conclusions for us today and, and hopefully uh, some points that, that maybe you can share the next time you're at the water cooler or at school with someone who goes to a Pentecostal church. Um, now when I say Pentecostal, here's what I mean. Uh, most Pentecostals uh, and Charismatics, and there's several denominations about which this is true, uh, most of them today believe that uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a special work of the Holy Spirit by which a believer is imbued with power for life and service. He's now gifted for ministry. This work of the Holy Spirit is distinct from and usually subsequent to the Spirit's work of regeneration, 
In this schema, all Christians are baptized by the Spirit, but not all Christians are baptized with or in the Spirit. And so you'll see, this is the definition that comes from this book by R.C. Sproul called The Mystery of the Holy Spirit. And on this, it's pretty good, and so I'm just using a lot of this tonight. But what he says is that there's this idea afloat that while every Christian sort of has been baptized, um, in, granted the Holy Spirit in certain ways, that there comes this second powerful experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And when you have that, you move into a new level of holiness and you move into a new level of power for service. You move into a new level of victory over sin. This, this is better than what it used to be because when Pentecostalism sort of first got going, they thought that the baptism of the Holy Spirit sort of moved you into the realm of sinlessness or even overwhelming victory over sin. And you'll still meet some people who are hoping for the baptism of the Holy Spirit because then they'll have victory over sin. And let me show you what, or at least tell you what R.C. Sproul says about this, and I think he's right. For any person to remain convinced that he's living without sin, he must avoid either a close scrutiny of God's law or an honest scrutiny of his own performance. And we'll talk about this at some point. There is no perfection. There's a lot of people who teach that they've overcome all willful sins. I just don't think the scripture bears that out. And usually people who speak that way either don't understand God's law as taught by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, or they don't have much self-awareness at all. I'm a sinner. You sin I still struggle with sin. So now a lot of people believe that when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit, it's just moving into a new level of victory and ministry for service, and that this having happened to you is shown by the speaking of tongues. That so where does this teaching come from? How many of you have any kind of Pentecostal background and have heard this? A few, okay, a handful. Why, why in the world would somebody believe this? Why would they believe that there's kind of a work of the Holy Spirit so that you believe, and every Christian has that, but then there's these second-tier Christians who have real powerful service, uh, and, and that, that baptism is shown through the speaking of tongues. Well, well, let's read some Bible verses, shall we? Y'all with me? This is Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of, as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So presumably, all of these all who were together in one place were people who were already believers in Jesus. And having been believers in Jesus, they were baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues. So what you have is you have something happening after they're saved that's different. Look at Acts 8. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And you know what happened when they received the Holy Spirit? They spoke in tongues. So we have here again, people who had heard the word of God, had been baptized into Jesus, believed in him, but have not heard the Holy Spirit. They were prayed for, the Holy Spirit fell, and again they spoke in tongues. This is Peter at the house of a man named Cornelius, a God-fearer, Acts 10, 44 through 47. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people just uh, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So what do we have? These are believers. People, they, they, they hear the word, they receive it. Then the Holy Spirit comes and they speak in tongues. And Peter takes speaking in tongues as them having received the Holy Spirit. Acts 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? So we've got baptism, Holy Spirit. They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began, guess what? Speaking in tongues. So there's a pattern that, that develops here in these verses. The first thing that we see is people were believers... Already, maybe with the exception of uh, Acts 8. Uh, people were believers and thus born of the Spirit prior to their baptism uh, in the Holy Spirit. This indicates that there must be a distinction between the Spirit's work of regeneration and the Spirit's work of baptizing. Two, there's a time gap between faith and Holy Spirit baptism. This clearly indicates that while some Christians have the Holy Spirit to the degree that they're regenerate, they may still lack the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is subsequent. Three, the initial outward evidence of baptism in the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. I can't tell you how many times today I wrote the word tongues, and I think I misspelled it every time. It's one of those words I just can't ever get on the first go-round. So here's the question. All right, this is what the book of Acts says, case closed, right? The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. I'm sorry, I have to work a GIF in. No, I don't think so. I, I think all those premises were true. You don't like GIFs, don't you? Um, all the premises are true. In the book of Acts, there are people who uh, have faith, enough of the Holy Spirit to believe, and then they have baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's also true that in the book of Acts, there's a time between those two things. 
And it's also true in the book of Acts that being baptized with the Holy Spirit is always indicated with the speaking of tongues. Does that settle the issue? No. There are problems. And guess what, kiddos? We're going to go a little deep in the weeds tonight, okay? But we've got to do this because these are deep arguments, and I'm not even taking these as far as they go. But if you are able to pay attention to this, this will make you a better Bible reader. So does that make it worth listening to? It does, okay? This will make you a better Bible reader, even if it's somewhat complicated. So let's look at some of the problems. Number one, Acts 2 might not be describing all the disciples. Now, I'm not necessarily persuaded by this argument, but I think what it does is it helps us to see that things aren't always as easy as we think they are. So look in Acts 2. Presumably, all the people who had the Holy Spirit poured out on them were the 120. But is that the case? Is that the case? It may not be the case. Why do I say that? Well, when Luke wrote Acts of the Apostles, uh, did he include the verse numbers and the chapter divisions? No. So you have to be really careful when you read the Bible that you not think, well, we're in chapter 2 now. This is a new unit. It may not be. Sometimes you have to read the Bible as if you're reading something without chapter and verse numbers. So here's what I want you to see. Number one, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now look at the end of verse 26. Who are the last people mentioned? 26 of chapter 1. Not rhetorical. Who are the last people mentioned in Acts 1, 26? The 11 apostles. Then it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So it could be that they is only the 11. You see that? Again, we may be able to assume it's the 120, but the clearest and closest antecedent referent is the 11 apostles. Then look down in verse 7. When they were speaking in tongues, in verse 7 it says this, And everybody was amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who were speaking Galileans? A question. Do you think that's what's going on? Ben, are you touching things? Check, check. Um... In Acts chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And the question is, do you think that whole 120 would have just been Galileans, or do you think there would be some people from Judea? Now, do you know why they noticed this? Because the Judeans were the city folk, and the Galileans were the hicks. So the Galileans would have been the people who speak like us. Not really. I don't think they have a draw. But you have to assume that all 120 were Galileans, and given that they were in Jerusalem, I just doubt it. Does that make sense? And so it says all the ones who are speaking in tongues, aren't they Galileans? What were those 11 apostles? Galileans. Okay? Uh, and then finally, when the people start asking questions, look at verse... Um, Thirty-seven. Now, when they heard this, Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, this is verse 37 in chapter 2, 
When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, why were they only talking to Peter and the rest of the apostles? Because it might be likely that it was just those 11 who were speaking in tongues. Now, am I 100% persuaded by this? No. But one point I just want to make to our Pentecostal brothers and sisters is that it may be that it was only the 11 that spoke in tongues that day, which means there were a whole lot of people who didn't speak in tongues that day. Okay? Second problem, and this is where we begin to get into some weeds. In Paul, people who've been baptized in the Holy Spirit have not spoken in tongues. So if the argument is, you may have enough of the Holy Spirit to be saved, but when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you speak in tongues... Well, in Paul, there are people who've been baptized in the Holy Spirit that have not spoken in tongues. This is where we begin to get in some weeds. But this is good, right? This way you know that I went to seminary. That's the value of this. So Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, which we read a few minutes ago. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So here's what Paul says. Uh, we, and, and this, these two things are right beside each other in the Greek, and it's emphatic. For we all, in one spirit, were what? So what were we baptized into? All right, so we see here that, that Paul is saying that all of the Corinthians were baptized in the spirit into one body. All right, now, I just want to point this out. There's three words that are really important there. It's a Greek uh, preposition, in. It's the Greek word pneumati, which is that Greek word pneuma in the dative case. How many of you know what a case language is? All right, Latin, Spanish, yada, yada, yada. All right, so we have in, preposition, pneumati, dative case, Greek spirit, baptizo. Now, there are six times in the New Testament when people are said they're going to be baptized in the Spirit, six other times, and every time it has those three ingredients. The preposition in, pneumati, and dative, and baptizo. I'll show you some. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So that's that phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit, or Acts 11. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it's the same as Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. And these two verses are referring to when the Spirit was poured out and they spoke in tongues, right? But here Paul says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body and we were made to drink of one spirit. Now, what trips people up here, and again, I'm getting nerdy, what trips people up is it seems like they were baptized into two things in this verse, right? They were baptized into the Spirit, and they were also baptized into what? And so what our Pentecostal brothers and sisters will say is you can't translate then that they were baptized into two things. When Paul is talking about these Christians in Corinth, they were baptized by the Spirit into the body. A couple problems with that. It's always Jesus that's baptizing people in the Spirit. It's never the Spirit that's baptizing anybody into anything. Okay? You're like, are we out of the weeds yet? 
One more weed. There's another place in Paul, in Corinthians, where he also says people were baptized into two things. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. And all were baptized into Moses. So Paul doesn't have a problem with saying people can be baptized into more than one thing. Does this make sense? So all of that considered, when we deal with 1 Corinthians 12, we're looking at a verse where Paul is talking to these Christians, and he says, you all of you, Corinthians, were baptized in the Spirit. But we also know that not all of them spoke in tongues. Because, he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 29-31, are all apostles? What's the presumed answer? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? So we have in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12, people who are said to be baptized in the Holy Spirit who have not spoken in tongues. So the first argument we made against our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, charismatic friends, is this, that it may be the case that not everybody in Acts 2 spoke in uh, tongues, even though the Holy Spirit was poured out on all of them. In Paul, we have a bunch of people who have been clearly baptized in the Holy Spirit, but who do not speak in tongues. Third, nerd word. There are hermeneutical problems. You're like, hermeneutical? Kids, this word comes from the Greek god Hermes. Hermes was the god who carried the messages from Zeus down to others, okay? He was the, the god of messages. And so what we get from that is hermeneutics is the science of trying to interpret trying to understand there are hermeneutical problems and this is where i really need you guys to pay attention because the hermeneutical problems demonstrated here not only trip up our pentecostal brothers and sisters they can often also trip us up sproul says this the issue is this is the record of acts proof that the sequence of the Holy Spirit's work among the first Christians is intended to be normative for the church throughout the ages. In other words, just because it happened in Acts, does that mean it's always supposed to happen? Another way of phrasing this, the working assumption of neo-Pentecostal theology is that the purpose of biblical narrative is to teach us what happened uh, then, that what happened then was to be normative for all generations. This is R.C. Sproul. Here's what he's saying. Biblical narrative. What is a narrative? Somebody tell me. Biblical story. Most of the Bible is narrative. The book of Acts is narrative because it told us what happened. Uh, First and Second Chronicles, narrative. The Gospels, narrative, right? First and Second Kings, narrative. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, narrative. First and Second Samuel. They're all telling us a story about what happened. And when you assume that just because something happened in Acts, uh, therefore it must be normative for all generations, the question is, well, just because it happened in Acts, is Luke just telling us what happened then? Or is Luke telling us, through telling us this story, what always has to happen? 
But let me phrase this in another way. Because you need to understand this. Because this affects your Bible reading as well. Because Samuel defeated the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, does that mean whenever you meet a Philistine, you're supposed to kill him with the jawbone of a donkey? Miriam says yes. Somebody call the police, okay? No. Um, or how about this? Because Jesus walked on water in the Gospels, is that the author of the Gospels teaching you that your experience should be that you walk on water? It comes down to this. What's the purpose of biblical narrative? When the Bible tells us stories, what's the point of the story? Is it to say what always has to happen, or is it to say what did happen? Class, which is it? It's to say what did happen. Now, sometimes, of course, if we read them carefully, we can see that Bible stories are told to teach us, to make a point about how we should live. But by and large, when the narratives are talking about what happened, they're telling us what happened. I mean, you can't say that just because Abraham had two wives, therefore people believe that Christians must all have two wives. Men, how many of you want another wife? None of us, right? This is one of the things where people come at us as Christians. They go, well, the Bible must believe that bigamy is okay because Abraham had two wives. Is the Bible telling us that Abraham having two wives the same as the Bible saying it's okay that you have two wives? No. If you can understand this point, you'll, you'll understand a lot. That when the Bible tells you what happened, it's just telling you what happened. And sometimes there's a point that you can take for your life. There's always a point you can take for your life. But it's never that you're to relive the narrative of what happened. So when I say it's a hermeneutical issue, here's what I mean. When it comes to how we today are to live the Christian life, is the direct didactic teaching coming from Acts or coming from the epistles? coming from the epistles, right? Paul writes things to churches that are normative for us today. Narrative isn't necessarily normative for us today. Now, goodness gracious, there's a lot, and when God acts in history, there are things we need to take for our lives, but just because it happened then doesn't mean that the Bible's saying it has to happen now. So, y'all follow, y'all, we're, we're coming out of the weeds, y'all with me? Let me make this point. When you read the Bible, you have to read it according to its genre, right? Had a conversation the other day about this. We don't read the book of Proverbs as if it's giving us promises, do we? When, when the Bible says, raise up a child in the way that they should go, when they're old, they'll not depart from it, is that the Bible saying, this is a Loctite promise? Or is the Bible saying, this is a proverb, it's a generally true statement that's not always true? It's a generally true statement that's not always true. That's what a proverb is. So when you read Proverbs, you don't go, well, God made a promise that if I am generous, then I'll be rich. It's generally true that the, the generous prosper. It's not always true. Uh, or that if I live a righteous life, no suffering will come to me. Because that's what it says in Proverbs. Okay, that's generally true. How'd that work out for Jesus? So when you read a proverb, you've got to read it as a proverb. 
when you read apocalyptic literature, which is what we're doing on Sunday morning, one of the things I'm trying to tell you is you have to read it like it's apocalyptic literature and not like it's an epistle. That it communicates truth in a different way. Narrative communicates truth in a different way. And just because you read a story in the Bible does not mean that that's what's normative for today. That is, that's what we should all be experiencing. That's what we should all be doing. So my first sub point here is that you shouldn't necessarily be going to Acts to determine how things should be now. You should read Acts going, how did God work then? You got it? And if you go to Acts or the Gospels thinking, well, whatever happened then must happen now. You're going to be weird. And it's not necessarily wrong to be weird. You're just going to be wrongly weird. Second, and this is to me very important, that we should all speak in tongues isn't even the point of Acts. The point of people speaking in tongues was to show that all kinds of people are accepted. What do I mean? The book of Acts doesn't interpret all of these instances of people speaking in tongues, and it doesn't go, boy, everybody should speak in tongues. Acts interprets what's going on for us. Jesus said in Acts 1, verse 8, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you know what we have when it comes to the story of people speaking in tongues? We have people speaking in tongues in Jerusalem, outside, Samaritans, and Gentiles. And what Luke is doing is he's showing that the same Holy Spirit that was poured out without a doubt on those first Jewish Christians was also poured out on God-fearers and was also poured out on Samaritans and was also poured out on Gentiles so that by the time you get to the end of Acts, there's no doubt that now God accepts people by faith in Jesus and grants everybody the Holy Spirit. It is not you should all be speaking in tongues. The problem with Pentecostals is not that they take Pentecost too seriously. R.C. Sproul says it's that they don't take it seriously enough. It was an epochal, eon-changing time. The, the baton was being shifted from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. Remember, in the New Covenant, based on what Moses hoped, he wanted everybody to have the Spirit and everybody to prophesy. And the reason people speak in tongues at various points in Acts is it's God saying, I accept this group and this group and this group and this group on the basis of faith and not on the basis of becoming a Jew. And so he just pours out his Holy Spirit in a new way again and then with this group and then with this group. And so that by the time you get to the end of Acts, every possible group division has now spoken in tongues together. That's God's way of saying the age of the Spirit has come. Does this make sense? Because this is exactly how Peter takes it. While Peter was saying these words, this is when he's preaching. This is Cornelius. He's a God-fearing Gentile. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. 
For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, everybody who's ever going to be a believer is going to speak in tongues. Wait, no, that's not what he says, is it? He says, then Peter declared, can anybody withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. The biggest theological problem in the New Testament, and we see this in Acts 15, we see it in Colossians, Galatians, Romans, all over the place, is the question is, did Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be fully acceptable to God? And God pouring out his spirit from one group to another is God's way of saying, no. They can just come straight to me through Jesus. Peter had to be told from heaven a couple of times, you're okay to eat non-kosher food. Right? Uh, when he got back from doing this, the biggest problem that people had is that Peter had eaten with Gentiles. And so Peter does this. As I began, to, he's given his report to these people. He said, Peter, what are you doing eating with Gentiles? They've got to eat kosher if they're going to have any hope of becoming like us. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they what? They spoke in tongues too, but they're dirty. They eat ham. We had stuffed pork chops tonight. They would have not liked us. They fell silent and then they glorified saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. We have no idea how hard it was based upon the Old Testament temple and sacrificial system and cleanliness laws for Jews to actually believe that God could save anybody else who didn't have this. And the way that God had to demonstrate in the book of Acts that Samaritans and God-fearers and Gentiles were actually as acceptable is he had to give his apostles a really major sign that the age of the Spirit had come, that is, glorifying God by speaking in tongues, and then he had to give it to this group and to this group and to this group so that they could actually believe that all of these people were equal before God and Jesus. That's what's going on in the book of Acts, not this is teaching us that everybody who's baptized in the Spirit will speak in tongues. Because by the time you get to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he's saying you've all been baptized in the Spirit because you believe in Jesus and not all of you speak in tongues. Because Jesus had said, Lord, is it this time you'll restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When those first disciples spoke in tongues, they didn't go, wow, the Spirit has come. We're all amazing. When they spoke in tongues, Peter said, Jesus has been vindicated by God and this is the sign. This Jesus has baptized them in the Holy Spirit. And now Jesus has baptized them. And now Jesus has baptized them. And now that all of these groups have been brought into the church, this no longer has to happen because now we all know you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. 
So how do we uh, apply this? And I'm actually glad we have a, a big swath of us in here tonight. Um, I, I, number one, I think what we can take from the book of Acts is not that we should all speak in the uh, tongues, but I think we can all take from the book of Acts that there's probably a lot more out there for us than we're currently experiencing. I think we can say that. I mean, Paul does look at Christians and say, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's a present tense linear verb, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. There is more for us out there than we're currently experiencing. Do you believe that there's more of God out there for you than you currently know? And do you think that you could know him like closer and better than you do? There's hope there then that, that you'll be closer and closer and closer and closer to the, the wellspring of the universe, to the mystery of all mystery. There's more of God for you to know. I think we can take that from Acts. Because we can realize on the basis of the book of Acts that we're in the new age of the spirit. And the way the prophets describe the new age of the spirit is probably a little further down the line than where we are. There is more of God to know. But then secondly, I think when it comes to this, we need to realize that inside the church of Jesus, we can't allow class distinctions. The whole point of pouring out the Holy Spirit is that everybody is acceptable here if they trust in Christ. Does this make sense? And it is a shame that Sunday is still the most segregated day of the week. And not only are we segregated in terms of going to different churches, we're actually segregated within churches. I, I, one of the things I want to convince us of over and over and over again is that there aren't Let me say this. Next week, I'm going to speak at a homeschooling conference. I'll be gone three days. We've got a special guest coming next week. It'll be awesome. And one of the, one of the problems with homeschoolers is they tend to sort of get with their tribe. And this group I'm going to speak to, I know for a fact that their homeschooling group is probably closer to their heart than their own church. So every time I speak to homeschoolers, and especially this particular group, it's a group my wife and I are a part of, one of the things I always say is don't let your community become your church. Do you know why? Do you know that people feel more closeness when they're with their homeschool group than they do when they're with their church? And they think it's great, but do you know what it actually is? These are people who all have kids around the same age, who all make about the same amount of money, roughly, who are all in the same stage of life, who all are generally the same race, and who all believe the same thing about education, no, no wonder they're unified. But is that the unity of the spirit? No. The unity of the spirit is when people who are from this economic level and from this economic level love each other really much, like well, and communicate well with one another and would die for one another because they're the same in Jesus. And then you have older folks who feel real kinship with the younger folks because you've been won by Jesus and you've been won by Jesus, all right. So when there's a unity of people from different groups, that's the spirit. And what we do is get with people just like us and go, whoa, the spirit. It's not true. When you come in here, listen to me, when you come in here and we all have to, every single one of us has to work on this, 
Even in a church as small as ours, there's enclaves. And I don't, I don't care who your best friend is outside of here. I'm your best friend inside of here. Does this make sense? Uh, and if you're not sinning, I don't care who you spend your time with the other 125 hours of the week. What, what, have friends, have fun, have a great time. When you're here, we should be opening ourselves up to other people that Jesus has saved just like us who are in the same covenant community with us. We should be opening our groups. We should be expanding our borders. We should be welcoming people in who are not like us specifically because they're not like us. Because as we feel close to them and as our group just grows bigger and bigger so there's actually unity, then we'll be able to say, gum, this must be by the Spirit. And until then, we can just go, well, they're sort of like me and like the same things I like. And that's a problem here. And it's one we desperately need to be praying about because even a church as small as ours can be fractured. And every single one of us, from the young ones in the back to the older ones in the front, not, not draw, I'm drawing with broad brushes here, y'all forgive me. Um, you should be doing whatever you can the three hours a week that you are here to be spending your time and experiencing unity with as wide a group of people as possible. Because these are also people that Jesus saved just like he saved you. And because of that, they are your brother and your sister. And while you're here, your friend. Because the Holy Spirit poured out tongues to teach us that. And for the Jews, they had a rough time getting over the fact that those people didn't look like us and didn't think like us. And the Holy Spirit gave tongues to group after group after group to show if they're in Jesus, then they're yours. They're yours. And that's something we all need to work on. So I hope that several of you will speak in tongues at some point. But that's not the sign that you're baptized in the Spirit. Now that the baton has been passed, you're baptized in the Spirit the moment you believe in Jesus and you are gifted to serve his church from that moment on. Maybe for some of you it is tongues. Maybe for most of you it's not. Let's pray. Father, help us to apply this to our hearts and to be the kind of people you would have us to be, to reach out to those not like us, to genuinely care about them, Lord, um, because we're here together in your name. Uh, help us, Lord, to experience all of you that we can. For the glory of your name we pray.